All right, Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by something that we'll have to fill in later, and you can just cut this and replace it. Cool. Speaking of some kind of bull****, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? Live from the Mundangerous Green Devil's Mouth in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 199 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're breaking out our 10-foot poles as we discuss dungeon crawls. But first the rogue traders gentrify the neighborhood in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Stardust Crusader stands up to all comers in the Character Creation Forge. I, I know it's a green something's mouth, but... I don't remember, is it a demon or a devil? Uh, let's say there's no difference just to piss them both off. <laughs> Perfect. So this week, Total Party Thrills brought to you by Iron GM LLC. The Grimmer Space Kickstarter is now live. It's bullets versus fireballs against the backdrop of alien horrors. The sci-fi horror Starfinder setting comes from the award-winning game designers Lou Agresta and Roan Barton. You know, it was developed by actor Sean Astin of Lord of the Rings and Stranger Things. You know that guy. Also, Sean Astin of The Goonies. Sean Astin was in Stranger Things? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen Stranger Things. Weird, huh? Well, you are currently not of the zeitgeist, but I... Oh, yeah. Did you not recognize him because he doesn't look like he did in The Goonies? (laughs) No, I just... (laughs) He's just like a normal dude. Was he like, I got the rich stuff! (laughs) (laughs) So, tell me about... Grimmer Space. Look, the citizens of Grimmer Space are veterans when it comes to fighting alien abominations from the depths. Alien abominations, where have I heard that before? I feel mm. like this is uh, a setting after my own heart because I am all about killing, purging the Xenos in 40k. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are evil Sunder Mages who are near immortal demigods of sorcery who ripped into the cosmos recently through a vast purple Terran space time called the. Help me with the Shane. Is it the Seath or the Seethy? I think it's the Seath. I'm going to go with that. You know what I like about these uh, near-immortal demigods of sorcery? They're almost sorcerer kings from Dark Sun? That is true. I like that they're near-immortal, which means we can kill them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not yet immortal. <laughs> <laughs> goals. you got to have goals. So as the Seath leaks magic into their galaxy for the first time, the Sunder Mages plot to conquer the five distinct technological civilizations of Grimmer Space from the shadows. Soon, science and magic will come to world-ending blows. I do like science versus magic because you I, never I really know what to do. Yeah. And, and I like that they know that like this, this area of the galaxy sucks. So we called it Grimmer space. <laughs> <laughs> look, <laughs> we put it right on the box. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, when you came to our galaxy, you knew what you were getting into. <laughs> this, this isn't hammer space. Okay. Right. <laughs> Nobody keeps things here. <laughs> All right. You can find out more and check out the Kickstarter at grimmerspace.com. Shane, speaking of terrible, grim, dark places, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Deathworld Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. And having flushed out a Technoganger counterintelligence cell and carried out a little bombing mission of your own, 
you currently stand with your astropath flare lying under the rubble of a destroyed manufactorum uh, because he did the bombing with himself in the room and then collapsed the entire building on top of himself. Look, we didn't think it was an actually good plan, but when he said, I'm going to go in with bombs and blow myself up and probably also them, we said, yes, that sounds great. Right. (laughs) So here lies Flair under this building. (laughs) Bits of him? Was it bits of him? No, he's intact. Oh, man. But you don't know that yet. (laughs) Um, As far as you know, uh, you should just carry on with life as usual. Uh, yeah, I think what had happened is we knew he was going to go in and we knew there was going to be a very big explosion. So the rest of us uh, set up a perimeter, a very large perimeter, just in case all of the techno gangers weren't killed. So anyone escaping, we could pick off. Uh, no one escaped. There was an extremely large explosion and we decided to just wait for a very, very long time. Yep. You end up dis- dispatching... Uh some of yourselves back to work uh, when it's abundantly clear that nobody is coming out of the rubble and no one really feels like going into the rubble to dig flare out. So the first thing you do, the first order of business is you've got shipments that are starting to arrive into Meridian from your mining camp. And now you need to, you know, protect those literal profits. So we recall our crude mercenaries, our new crude mercenaries, to the city itself and get ready to flex our muscle a bit further on the rest of the techno gangers, plus any other challengers who feel like stepping up to us right now. And then, meanwhile, uh, down underneath all that rubble, Flair awakens to find himself miraculously alive. Uh, you said, is he in one piece? It's almost like fate conspired to make sure he would be in one piece. Huh. The the burning skeins of fate, uh-huh. if you will. <laughs> yeah, this is uh this is where Fla- Flair burns the fate point. He survived the damage from his satchel of crack grenades. He did not survive the building collapsing upon him. So he uh does find fate having intervened in uh the form of the hollowed out space amid the debris that he has been kind of safely tucked up under. And he basically is trapped uh, in this space, but he's got a little plan of his own. Not that he can reach out and talk to anybody under here, but if he did, he'd say, hey, don't worry, I'll be back in a day. He's entombed, alive, uh, and surely will die a terrible death, except, of course, he is a psyker. Uh, And his player, Angelo, knows that, you know, give it one day of rest and a bit of prayer and he can cast Gates of Infinity again and get the heck out of there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Gates of Infinity being the teleport spell that got him into this mess can also get him out. So he does that. He spends a day praying, uh, you know, thankful to be alive. And while you guys are kind of muddling about carrying on the normal business of rogue trading, a Gate to Infinity opens in your HQ and Flare walks out. Uh, yeah, uh, we split up your stuff already, and you're not getting any of it back. <laughs> right. He is greeted by <laughs> almost no thanks and definitely no fanfare. <laughs> because we're very busy. There's a great deal of logistical work to do right here, okay? So we institute those troop rotations. We send uh, armsmen that we've recruited locally uh, under Captain Zarkov back to our ship, the His Enduring Light, and we call down the Honor Guard, who we still have because we did not, in fact, feed them to the crew. Right. <laughs> So this is uh, this is all part of Operation Flex Your Muscle. So now we have the crew and the Honor Guard in the city of Meridian. The Technogangers are reeling from the major blow they have just been dealt by us and our bombs. And the profits from our uh, second uh, shaft in our mining operation are finally beginning to come in. 
So now that you've got a little change in your pocket over the next couple of weeks and, you know, you feel like you've got guns at your back as opposed to, you know, to the side of your head, like they, you're, they're usually pointed. Yeah, by other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> you turn your attention to uh, maybe an unexpected avenue uh, for, well, not for rogue traders, but at least for our rogue traders. Uh, you turn towards real estate. Look, if there's one thing that we've learned in the past few years in the real world, it's that if you are bad people, you eventually get into real estate. <laughs> so we did. Uh, namely, we are looking at the North Manufactories, where the techno gangers uh, have their base of operation. And we look at it there on the map, and we think to ourselves, you know, what if uh, we drove up some rents in that neighborhood? And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week... We are talking about dungeon crawls. Shane, uh, what is a dungeon crawl besides what Flair had to do after he was buried under rubble? <laughs> that was, I think that was more of a uh, an early grave crawl, but sure. So a dungeon crawl is one of the classic adventure frameworks. Um, there were a huge just volume, a glut, if you will, of adventures built on this concept. Uh, basically, you've got the PCs uh, get some type of hook to go visit a dungeon. The PCs then fight through a series of monsters or circumvent some traps or solve some puzzles, uh, usually in sort of discrete areas or rooms. Eventually, along the way, they fight a boss or obtain some relic or, you know, achieve some purpose or some MacGuffin. Uh, along the way, they collect their loot and their scars. You know, sometimes they die. Sometimes they have to be uh, medically evacuated from the dungeon. Uh, and then they end up going back to town as the triumphant heroes with, you know, more magic items and ready to go chase down the next dungeon. I mean, this isn't just the classic adventure framework, right? It's the original adventure framework. Exactly. It was basically... Uh, you need a place to explore uh, in the years before gamers decided that maybe a story should go along with this. It was, why are we out here killing things? Because there's treasure to be had. Right. And then what will we do with that treasure? We will be better at killing more monsters to get more treasure. Yes. The the basic hamster wheel of adventuring. Yes. Yes. Uh, which, you know, it's become a time honored tradition. It shows up everywhere from, games with many with actual real stories where you know you throw in a, a dungeon crawl because that's fun and people you know remember it and and also it's a sort of a test of your capabilities all the way to like the legend of zelda is just a series of dungeon crawls mm -hmm. yeah so this concept like you mentioned spawned from those early adventures from those original adventures uh mostly i think uh because they were very easy to publish <laughs> or at least if that wasn't the reason for it it was definitely true. Uh, all you need is a map with some numbered locations, and then you can just fill in the descriptions of what's inside each of those locations. You know, what, what are the monsters? What's the loot? What's going on there? Yeah, in the old days, it was pretty easy to spot a dungeon crawl just by scanning the titles of the adventure, right? Tomb of Horrors, Temple of Elemental Evil, uh, later on, Sunless Citadel. Yeah, the keep on the Borderlands. No, that one's actually a trap. The keep on the Borderlands is where you start, and then you go and explore a bunch of dungeons from there. So keep in mind, right, this is such an archetype that it spawned the OSR game Dungeon Crawl Classics, in which you literally play low-level uh, characters who are sprinting through a dungeon in the classic form of learning by mm, mistake-making, uh, dying along the way, and finding new PCs to make it. 
Yeah, old school. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So I think most gamers who have been playing, who, like who aren't absolutely new to the genre, have an experience with dungeon crawls. Why is it that they've lasted so long and, and are even experiencing a resurgence these days? What do people like about them? So I think they do like that classic experience and that old school feel. Um, it also has, and you know, there's a chicken and egg thing going on, but I think it also has a very sort of familiar video game feel as well. You mm. know, the concept of the raid uh, in like MMOs or um, even before that, you know, um, the old Black Isle, uh, Bioware RPGs had those sort of encounters where you would go into the dungeon and you would have to clear it room by room and you would kind of work your way through the mines of Am or, you know, whatever, the caverns in wherever or through the literal dungeon of the keep uh, to get inside. Yeah, that's an interesting point that um, the suspension of disbelief that was required in like the late 70s and early 80s is not required anymore because almost everybody has played some sort of version of this game where like there's not really a reason why you're here hacking like monsters apart and you know pushing bookcases or looking for like you know keys that magically appear from nothing once you've like stabbed the last monster like that's just something most people have grown up doing now yeah like i wonder about that if you are you know maybe like 16 or 17 picking up D for the first time um or you know picking up like a a dungeon crawl type adventure for the first time you've probably played some story oriented games um if you've played a you know a variety of role-playing games and you pick up this dungeon crawl and you think oh this is very video gamey like those other games they're not that video gamey but this feels a lot like a video game i mean that was the complaint about fourth edition from a lot of people right mm-hmm which was like, uh, you just made this a new video game. Oh, you mean you just reestablished all the tropes that video games stole in the first place? Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. In that case, you're correct. It's also easy to, to wrap your head around a dungeon crawl, right? Like, aside from having experience with the format, if you're explaining to someone who's not a gamer in any way, it's, uh, it's really simple and succinct. Hey, you don't have stuff. You're going to go kill things and take their stuff. That's the basic feedback loop of D&D, right? Right. <laughs> like, uh, and, like, you don't need to explain, like, what is the history of the Forgotten Realms or, like, Eberron is, like, um, Victorian-era, like, you know, techno-magipunk, right? None of that has to happen. It's just we're going to go underground and someone built, uh, you know, a keep underground and that's where they stored all their stuff and we're going to get on the other side of their traps, you know, and it's a bit like uh, Ocean's Eleven, I guess, and you're going to know when we're done because there won't be any more stuff to find. Right. And maybe there'll be a little uh, a little icon in the corner of your screen and you click level up. Done. Also, like from the GM perspective, the hair really straightforward to run for the most part, or at least much more straightforward than like an open-ended adventure when you like walk into the city and now you have 19 different shops you could explore. Yeah, I, you've got like kind of a contained environment that you expect everybody to be in. You get clear boundaries. You have an endpoint. Um, you've got this, like you said, this sort of regular feedback loop of like open a door, kill something, get its stuff, figure out if that stuff is better than my stuff, and then use that stuff to open the next door and fight the next group of inhabitants and take their stuff. It's all, it just kind of works, you know? Yeah. They're also easy to plan. Um, it is almost always good to have a some sort of dungeon crawl in your back pocket uh, if you are running games 
just because you never know when you might want like one to three sessions to sort of not have to plan anything, not necessarily have to decide how all of like the story elements fit together and like whether you're placing the clues correctly or whatever, right? It's just either you're taking um, a different uh, dungeon crawl that's already published and just inserting it wherever your players happen to be or you're making it up on the fly. Like it's one of the easiest things to just sort of like randomly generate or or like come up with the next room uh, while the characters are in the previous room. Yeah, you know, the nice thing about dungeon crawls is that you very rarely have to worry about the barbarian just getting bored, raging, and attacking the king in the throne room. You know, like the players tend to just stick with solving the problem at hand. Right, like it's a type of railroading that almost no one has a problem with. Like you can't get off track because there are massive stone walls all around you. Right, and there's <laughs> and, nothing there's nothing nowhere else to go. That's that's why you're way out here, you know, 2 days away from town. Right, you can't even go back because the monsters respawn. Right. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> And they're as big as you need them to be. Like, I think there are a ton of uh, five-room dungeon uh, apps or websites or generators online that you can find. But if that's not enough, you could, I mean, you know, lots of mega dungeons are like hundreds of rooms. A lot of the old school dungeons, like when the entire adventure was just a dungeon, like there were thousands of rooms uh, along multiple layers. This was the, the entire premise of the first Diablo game. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right? It was it was only dungeons. There was a town with like four people in it. I mean, even Diablo 2 was just like, a funny thing happened on my way to the dungeon. Right. Go find the dungeons and then clear the dungeon. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, this this actually happened in um, our game that uh, I've been running, the like, when we've been uh, back to Eberron, maybe like two or three weeks ago, uh, you guys showed up in a new town in Fairhaven, and I remember like you guys being like, uh, hey, we sort of hit, sort of hit that analysis paralysis uh, when there are too many options laid out in front of you. Uh, like that feeling you got in the old um, Black Isle Baldur's Gate. Like when you finally got to Baldur's Gate, it was like, oh my God, there's like 200 NPCs I could talk to and, and 18 different plot hooks. Uh, I don't know where to start and I don't know what to do. And I think I might actually put this game down and walk away for a little while. That was every time that I quit an RPG was exactly that moment right, right. after the first act. <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember like you guys get to Fairhaven and I'm like, well, this is a real living city. And like you guys have, you know, a bunch of different things that you, some of you are interested in and some aren't. So here are a bunch of options and like the game ground to a halt right there in like the middle of the session because everyone was like, I, I don't know, all of them, none of them. <laughs> hey, can I go back to Thalanus? Right. <laughs> I'll only be gone for like a day or two. Right. <laughs> I would like to leave this plane now. Right. I'm level be 11, like, sir. How do I say no but not say no? <laughs> and I actually thought, I need to put together a dungeon, man. All right. as, like, as soon as that session was over, I was like, I'm making a dungeon. Forget this. Okay. <laughs> but everyone has played a terrible dungeon or been in a dungeon that was run poorly. Uh, so what are the pitfalls you need to look out for? Um, pitfalls, huh? Hey, uh, you know, actual pits with uh, crocodiles in them. Yeah. Or, you just got to swing across the vines. It's fine. You know, they're filled with crocodiles with crocodiles for legs. And crocodiles for teeth. It's just fractal crocodiles. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the most terrifying kind. <laughs> so one of the biggest pitfalls of your dungeon crawl is that they are naturally combat heavy and very mechanically oriented. 
most of the challenges that you're going to run into will be either traps or monsters. These are generally overcome with dice, uh, which can often just be bad for some of the player archetypes at your table, particularly ones who didn't start in D and D or don't don't you know love this aspect of D and D. Yeah, like if you're a theater of the mind group, it it is a lot harder because lots of times. It really matters if you are in this five foot square or the adjacent five foot square when like the trap goes off. Right. Yeah, there's also like an element of the old school where, you know, you draw the map and you kind of nervously move forward square by square through it and, and you have to keep track of what's going on where and oh, did you forget about this door back there? Well maybe that has an important key in it that won't that you'll have to, you know, make sure that you obtain before you move forward later on and different things. And like, if you don't keep all of that stuff in mind, um, you're not really getting the full dungeon crawl experience, nor are you necessarily going to be successful in your dungeon crawl. So it can be a little frustrating for people who aren't used to that sort of structured adventure feel. Yeah, like in the worst case scenario, you get into that situation where, you know, when you're uh, playing like an investigative video game and you've beaten all the enemies and all you're doing is running through like 19 different rooms again trying to find where the heck that red key card is mm-hmm. because like the game was written poorly so it it was only in one location if you didn't find it you can't go anywhere yeah i mean at least you can kind of fast travel through a dungeon right oh we go back to that door right but it's still like cool let's look at our map and see what spot we missed you know and like there is a little of that old school appeal to it if you get to that point and you have your map kind of all built out and you get to see the dungeon on the map, you know, um, and a, a lot of times like those old school dungeons had a shape to them that had some sort of dramatic irony or whatever. And that was always kind of fun to figure out what was going on with the map. But right. Why isn't this room bigger? Right. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like that is very much not the core 5e experience nowadays uh that would be quite a departure i think for a lot of groups especially some who came more from story games right there's a reason why games have evolved away from like being pretty much this exclusively yeah and there's a reason that you just you know hold tab to see the uh the map come up on every single video game nowadays right and highlight all the items that uh you miss like there's no perception roll typically yeah, exactly <laughs> it's just there it is <laughs> Um, so speaking of this, like that's another thing. Like dungeons tend to be pretty puzzle heavy, right? Like the point of them is one, kill the monsters, but two, like figure out um, the the puzzle or the clues to get you through them. Because the conceit is often that it is created by like some crazy person, or like it, it is hiding some sort of treasure, but it is a test to get inside. But puzzles can definitely be hit or miss. This is definitely a time where some players find them really interesting and rewarding and like want to break out like the graph paper or like do the long division or the like um the anagram to figure out what's going on and others are just like can you guys do that i'm gonna go get some food yeah or (laughs) the flip side is some people want to like brute force the puzzle which can be frustrating for the GM to kind of lay out all this intricacy. And then, you know, when you feel like you're being in character as the frustrated, you know, uh, fighter or barbarian and like, I don't care about this. I just smash it. And it's like, uh, what do I do as the GM now? (laughs) You've kind of, I guess you've broken through my puzzle. (laughs) Or did you break the puzzle and now you're trapped here forever? Uh, which one is it? Yeah. What have I done? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like nobody ever thinks that if your if your fingers are caught in a finger trap, you could just get scissors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just like 
pull really hard it's just paper right (laughs) (laughs) like you're you're strong enough to bend steel bars right (laughs) like well the answer is always i bite it (laughs) (laughs) also uh not a whole lot of uh villagers or shopkeepers or politicians or nobles inside a dungeon that uh you can persuade with your uh, guile and charm huh yeah yeah it turns out that a lot of these dungeons don't include many npcs to role play with uh so if there's going to be role playing scenes um, or role playing at all sometimes in some groups that's going to have to occur between the players themselves rather than being sort of prompted or driven by the dm yeah and because it is so self-contained even if there are npcs or you know maybe intelligent monsters that you can parlay with uh, it's really hard to write the adventure in such a way that just murdering the monster doesn't get you the same stuff. Because like, where else is it going to put it? It's a dungeon, right? right. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't have like a key to a bank, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the traps I think of these as a as a GM, because um, a lot of times these these adventures did have places where there were chances to parlay with monsters, right? And if you if you did engage the monster in the right way or with the right, you know kind of prompt then you could get some sort of extra reward or whatever uh, or just bypass an encounter or whatever the challenge is but it was so frustrating as a gm to read about this cool role-playing moment that could happen and then your your players just kick in the door and go barreling through it just like they did every other room totally missing the fact that they could have clicked on that npc and said hello yeah but why would they you know (laughs) because like hey there's 40 kobolds in that room makes me go okay this is a challenge to be overcome (laughs) yeah there's a there's a plaque on the door that says please knock before entering and that's the clue that you can talk to them (laughs) but it's also the clue that we can surprise them by setting the whole room on fire (laughs) they'll never see it coming (laughs) they think we're gonna knock suckers um, and then I think, you know, you mentioned a five-room dungeon, and maybe this isn't as big of a problem there, but in the sort of classically sized dungeons or even mega dungeons especially, the dungeon crawl can turn into a slog. You know, at the end of the day, it is very much a kick a door, clear a room, loot the contents, and repeat. Um, the particulars of what that is change, but the core activity really doesn't. Yeah, say what you will about the city with too many options, but if you get bored doing something, you can almost always wander off and do a different thing and maybe come back to what you're doing right now. But in the dungeon, uh, unless you have teleport, guess what you're doing until you finish this dungeon? Right. I mean, the difference with that in the city is, in the city, if you even get the slightest hint that you might someday get bored with this, you'll just switch plans and never do anything. (laughs) Fine with me. You guys want to set up shop? Okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look at us. We're nobles now. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what's great about them. We talked a little bit about what some of the pitfalls are. How do you make a dungeon crawl great? Uh, Simple. You go in the DMs guild and you buy one. Total okay. Party Thrills brought to you by G&D Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Affiliated content. <laughs> the new frontier. Uh, no, yeah. One of the appeals of a dungeon crawl is that they're actually relatively simple to put together yourself. Um, I guess first off, though, you're going to want to make sure that your players are into into an, a dungeon crawl, right? Like you actually might have a group who is not interested in spending five sessions like underground and not talking to anybody and like carefully plotting out their rations. 
and you know, you, you don't necessarily have to have an above the table conversation about that, although you definitely can. I mean, you should be able to read uh, the the group pretty easily. Like people will one just sort of talk about it, talk about like other games they've played before that they really enjoyed, but also you'll see who is interested in what particular kinds of encounters. So once you've actually decided, hey, yeah, let's let's do a dungeon crawl. I'm interested in that. Uh, you are going to need to come up with a like a good in-game reason why that dungeon exists in the first place, because the verisimilitude is important. Yeah. So why hasn't this dungeon been raided by adventurers before? Cursed mummies. Yeah, I, I, something right. I, maybe it's that there's kobolds in the upper layers of the dungeon and they keep adventurers out and they are scared to go down below. Maybe it is the, you know, persistent rumor of those cursed mummies that keep people from going in. You know, like the, the town nearby might just consider it off limits and their warnings have kept people away. Shane, it actually turns out that every dungeon has been previously raided and you all are just suckers. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you were lied to and you get down inside and it turns out there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. How many times do you think you could do that in a session before the players rioted? If like you actually just, hit like, you? Just, <laughs> like, yeah, you just like set up a hook, like they investigate it, they go to the dungeon and then like maybe somebody hints like, oh yeah, no, that last group of adventurers, we didn't ever hear from them again. But I mean, they look pretty capable. And then all you do is you find like the dead bodies that they left behind. And you do that like three times, you're just following in their footsteps. Do you think the fourth time that you get demoted from being DM? But what if you ended with, guys, guys, come on, you didn't get any loot, sure. And there weren't any monsters, so you didn't get any XP, but the real treasure was the friends you found along the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? You uh, I united you with a common enemy, Guess me. <laughs> Guess what? Find new friends and a new kitchen table and flipping this one. <laughs> So I think another important thing for making dungeon crawls work is to create urgency. So one of the classic problems with dungeon crawls is that if the characters get into a difficult fight, they will just stop what they're doing and rest. Um, this sometimes stretches verisimilitude. You know, why are you breaking out a campfire in the middle of an underground dungeon? And obviously there's monsters around. They would come stumble upon you. Right, or uh, you all die of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's but, no flu, idiots. <laughs> but other times, right, you do have that kind of thing where you can just backtrack out of the dungeon, camp near the entrance, make sure nobody goes in or out, and then kind of realistically resume where you left off. Um, maybe even spread out the remaining monsters within the rooms that you've already cleared. So it's a little bit easier. Um, so if you create urgency, though, either, you know, some ticking timer or something that they don't want to miss, whatever it is, then those challenges all escalate as they have fewer resources to address them. And they have to decide kind of, can we risk resting here? Can we afford the time? Can we risk another fight? You know, do I use this high level spell now to just win this encounter? Um, knowing that I'll be weaker, but the rest of the party will have more stuff available. Right. And, you know, these are the traditional ways to create urgency. You know, why is it that they're going to the dungeon in the first place? So they, do they need to retrieve something? Maybe there is a time constraint on the item they need to retrieve, you know, some sort of herb for an antidote. Um, you know, the royal uh, coronation regalia that, that is required to actually, like, you know, make um the, this ascension to the throne actually legal. Mm -hmm. The thing I really like is, hey, the monsters are doing something very bad and you need to get down there and uh, 
solve this problem or this dungeon before they finish, right? Whether that's murdering the prisoners or some terrible ritual or whatever. Mm -hmm. Of course, it doesn't necessarily have to be something having to do with the dungeon itself. It could just be, you know, everything else they've got going on in their lives. Yeah, like if you want to make it to Tunfair for the Midsummer Parade, you're going to need to leave in two days. So wrap up this dungeon. Yeah. Uh, do you want to miss your Sweet 16? I don't want to miss my Sweet 16, okay? So let's hurry up with this dungeon. Yeah, do you really want to turn 30 in a dungeon? <laughs> <laughs> There's no reception, okay? <laughs> you are not going to be able to gram any of that. So another thing that I would recommend is be sure to include encounters with inhabitants who explicitly don't want to or don't need to fight. Um, a lot of times prisoners or captives can be good for that kind of change of pace. You know, you bust open the door and you find a bunch of people huddled in chains, um, scared that you're going to hurt them, but perfectly willing to tell you everything they know if you just convince them that you're not going to, you know, murder them or feed them to a dragon or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, even if they're uh, people who... Even if they're creatures who do belong inside the dungeon, they could be uh, injured or infirm, they could be elderly, they could be young. Um, th both of these instances are uh, good times to present your party with moral dilemmas. You know, what do they do here? And it may not even be like, do we kill them or not? It, it could just be like, do you take care of them or do you push further on? Do you right. bring them with you? Use your own resources on them? What? Do you free them and send them back knowing that they can't make it the day across the desert that they would need to to make it back to water and safety? You'll be fine. You'll be great. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. We believe in you. <laughs> you know, you might not make it back to the village, but the real treasure was the friends you found along the way. <laughs> it's also a good idea to um, bake in some opportunities to bypass encounters. Um often by stealth, right? So something like a great room that's full of kobolds but has catwalks up above it that seem deserted. Um, maybe the party can sneak across the room rather than having to fight their way through it, things like that. Um, anything that kind of gives uh, inspiration for lateral thinking and a chance to get the reward without having to do all the work uh, is great for the players to kind of change up pace. Yeah, you're, you're going to want to take every opportunity to include um, non-combat encounters or uh, just challenges that can be solved, not necessarily by fighting, so that uh, it gives all of your characters time to sort of stretch uh, those abilities that fit in other pillars, exploration and, you know, social when you can, or, or just, you know, in general, like skill checks, knowledge, history, things like that. Yeah. So speaking of like knowledge, you're going to want to try to tell a story uh, with the type of monsters and the way that they're organized in the dungeon itself. So if you think about um, like old, I think it was Dungeon Magazine would have like ecology articles um, that would talk about like what do Atyugs do and like green slimes, what kind of dungeons do they live in and where can you find them and, and what is their purpose inside a dungeon and like why do they keep showing up here, right? Like they, they weren't necessarily placed there. They gravitate toward these locations because of whatever, right? They like the refuse or, you know, they like the fact that it's full of methane or whatever. So, you know, mm -hmm. you can be rewarded with the knowledge of like, oh, I see this particular type of mold. We should not light torches here. Right. Yeah, and I like the even like the human ecology or humanoid ecology aspects of the dungeon. Um, a lot of time makes sense, and even in like the Lost Minds of Fandelver, the starter set adventure, um, in the like initial goblin 
caves that's kind of the first dungeon that exists and it's small it's maybe like 12 rooms but there exists kind of the throne room area where the boss is um the i don't know hobgoblin or whatever but off to the side of that there's just a steep drop off um and at the bottom of it are i believe his hounds that are tied up but it's his trash chute he throws the trash down to feed them after he eats, right? So that's what they eat. So as you come through the dungeon, you most likely first run into the hounds at the bottom. And then as you make your way up to up above to the throne room, you then find, oh, they connected, right? If you had gone and dug through the trash, you might see that there had been an opening at the top and you could have kind of bypassed it. But in all likelihood, you just see like, oh, that's that makes sense. That, that That's exactly what he would do with the trash, right? Right. And then that um, gives an incentive to start thinking logically about this place. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Are there more than one entrance? Is there uh, an exit? Where might the treasure room be that makes sense for these creatures? Exactly. You can also use this to kind of add story amongst the monsters themselves. So using that kind of goblin example, right? What if there are goblins early on in the ca- in the caverns who don't want to fight, right? They're being bullied by these hobgoblins or bugbears into fighting, and they would much rather usurp those bugbears or hobgoblins and let you just set them free. Um, maybe they'll give you information or maybe they'll lead you along or maybe they'll distract um, the stronger ones so that you can get by. Right. Or those sneaky goblins know all the secret passages. Mm-hmm. Right. Although, you know, perhaps deeper in the dungeon, you have the more loyal forces who uh, are definitely not interested in parlaying with you. Right. Or, you know, you can always get into like sort of the micro politics, right? Like maybe the goblins came from a different tribe uh, who have just sort of been um, absorbed by another group of goblins and hobgoblins and whatever, and they're treated as second-class citizens, and they don't like it, you know? Uh, you, there's there's many different kind of motivations here, but if you have these type of conflicting motivations, you can tell stories even though they're just monsters. Yeah, I always like dungeons with multiple hierarchies of, of control and power, Uh, So you'll have like opposed groups so that you can potentially like play one against the other or like Mm -hmm. have one hire you or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, So in addition to the monsters themselves, you can also tell a story with the dungeon itself, its particular layout, um, what the walls or the construction is made of or what it tells you or what its purpose was before it became like, you know, a deep dark dungeon. Yeah, so the majority of dungeons, uh, or at least dungeon-like places, are probably not created for the sole purpose of challenging adventures. You know, right? Aside from like um, Undermountain, yeah, <laughs> or you know, like if there's if a lich created it, then yeah, sure. But um, but more often it's you know like uh, a temple that's uh, been abandoned, or it's natural caves, or it's uh, an actual dungeon that was built for dungeonly purposes that has since fallen into disrepair, and then it leads to natural caves or different things like that. Yeah, my favorite is the dungeon that is created through natural disaster, mm-hmm. uh, where like this used to be a thing that was not a dungeon at all. It was. It was lovely. It was a museum. It was a library. It was a temple. And then it was buried in a, you know, a tidal wave or a giant earthquake. And now it's underground or like it's, you know, floating in outer space. And this used to be a research station. Mm-hmm. This used to be a spaceship that crash landed in the uh, in the barrier peaks. Huh. I, I like that idea. I wonder if anyone's ever used it. Yeah. Anybody ever thought of that? 
<laughs> Call me. <laughs> but those are things that I like. It's more interesting if those are things that the party can discover um, when they show up, right? Like now it's a deep and terrible and scary dungeon and they're going to go to explore that. But then strangely, like there are finely carved statues that don't look scary or mean at all. Why is that? Right. Or there's like um, artwork or tapestries that are still preserved that have sigils or coats of arms that don't mean anything to the current world, you know, but, but they can tell you something about the history of the world when this dungeon was not a dungeon. Right. And that'll explain why there are like, you know, great artifacts of, of power and, you know, also maybe why it wasn't looted before it's because one maybe nobody knew it was here in the first place or two like anybody who would have known about it has been was destroyed was in the destroyed, giant cataclysm yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> or like it's really hard to get to because it was buried by an earthquake eight thousand years ago right um and then keep in mind that the dungeon will be shaped by the monsters who live inside it um and potentially like by whoever created it or whatever is, you know, manipulating those monsters or, or whatever's going on. So, you know, if there is some sort of great power at the center of the dungeon, you know, it might be, have a corrupting influence, right? So what was like a finely constructed stone, um, you know, well-manufactured dungeon uh, or, you know, temple, say, uh, could now be falling into ruin, could have like rot and, you know, plague and pestilence sort of at its heart because there is some terrible artifact you know it could be even changing the the inhabitants of the dungeon that are drawn to it um towards its will i bet that artifact is worth a lot of money uh if you can get it out of there and you know get the stink off so players um if you're in a dungeon or approaching a dungeon i think basically you can take all the previous advice and just invert it okay yeah (laughs) <laughs> like all the stuff we just talked about that's the stuff to look out for <laughs> yeah uh you know the the joke of the 10 foot pole and and i will be honest i did not fully understand what the 10 foot pole was for until uh, i walked into a sphere of annihilation um, <laughs> so the idea of the 10 foot pole right is that you're 10 feet away when you trigger whatever trap is out there uh or if you know there's a gelatinous cube at the you know blocking the the passageway or whatever you've got your 10 foot pole to poke it with to bring it sort of animated to life rather than your uh nose being what pokes it and animates it right uh bring more than one that's why they're so cheap mm-hmm. <laughs> build construct a harness of 10 foot poles that extend from you in every direction <laughs> i this is also where like the um bag of caltrops and the bag of flour and the rope um, Wait, soap, flasks of oil, those are not just to burn. No, these are these are where all of these things become handy because uh, they're all kind of dungeoneering kit. You can RP a lot of this stuff or like feel free to MacGyver stuff early on and then come to an understanding with your GM that like, hey, we're not dumb. We made it this far. These are the kinds of things that that we are doing within reason, right? So yes, you're not actually going to construct a hamster ball of like 10 foot poles. But you probably are like not going to step on a new piece of terrain that you've never touched before without at least like tapping your 10 foot pole, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't need to be like, okay, I tapped the 10 foot pole and I roll a perception check and did that do anything? Every single step. Right. Like hand wave a lot of it. It one makes you a lot safer. It makes the game more interesting because you're moving along more quickly and you're going to save your GM a lot of trouble. Um, second, I think 
you can have a lot of fun with the mapping aspect, you know, grabbing the the graph paper and kind of drawing out the map and things like that. Like, I think that is a lot of fun to do if you're, particularly if you're kind of artistic and it leaves you with sort of an artifact at the end of the night. That's mm-hmm. sort of your, your reminder of like, oh, our adventure in this hole in the ground. Yeah, you also take a lot of the pressure off your GM to like draw the map for you. And mm-hmm. then you get in this nice exercise of like them describing it verbally to you and then you drawing it and writing it down you know like it, it enhances the rp aspect mm-hmm. uh get a bag of holding as quickly as you can so that you can stuff it chock full of both stuff that you loot but also supplies so many supplies have so many supplies that people will decide that you you don't need to count them anymore and then always bring a donkey to help carry your loot yeah or so you can eat it later <laughs> right <laughs> in a pinch <laughs> a donkey can provide both warmth food shelter <laughs> that's right also a goliath <laughs> yeah I was going to say halfling, but there's not a lot of meat in those buns. No, halflings are, are light picking. Um, and then generally, keep in mind that a dungeon is fundamentally a challenge of resource management. Mm. So you always want to be kind of asking yourself from the gamist perspective, how many resources do we need to invest in this fight in order to be successful? Um, and how do we minimize that number? So I used the joke earlier, but you know, if burning your highest level spell ends the encounter without anybody else doing anything then it might be worth doing that rather than saving it you know for a so-called boss fight or you know a a challenging encounter or something like that yeah i think that's a really good point like if you go in this understanding that it is a matter of resource management you're going to have a lot more fun because you're not going to get upset that like the next room after that there's another big monster and you can't just chuck a disintegrate at it you know because you use a disintegrate in the last room Mm -hmm. like that was a choice that you made and it paid off really well then and now you're you know paying the price for it and it could have gone either way before you could have like burned lower level slots but been in there for an hour uh and then like had to rest and then use your disintegrate now you know it's the same thing with food it's the same thing with arrows like um or or even just like do we go left or right you know you're you're going to investigate one of them are you going to go slowly and carefully or are you going to get there in time to fully stop the ritual are you going to face tiamat at full power or tiamat with just three heads (laughs) right uh and then i think the last bit of player advice is keep in mind the older the adventure the less likely it is to play fair oh yeah oh my god (laughs) Uh, things like tomb of horrors uh, tomb of annihilation uh temple of elemental evil like these are not uh modules for the faint of heart Uh, sometimes papa gary just smacks you upside the head and you have to deal with it yeah, he enjoyed that. Uh, and also, anyone who emulates him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, DCC, um, Shadows of the Demon Lord, like yep. these, the these they don't go easy on you, right? So, as we wrap up, uh, Ishan, what is your favorite dungeon crawl? I have a soft spot in my heart for Caves of Chaos, uh, which is more like eleven mini dungeons uh, all together in the same area, but. Uh, bad guys can follow you from one to the other um partially because it was uh the very beginning of the morning glory campaign before you even knew it was the morning glory campaign and partially because it's existed in many different iterations of D throughout the years and it always seems to fit wherever you need to stick it like it it makes a lot of sense that there'd be uh, a a place with a bunch of different caves each ruled by like a different kind of powerful monstrous humanoid and 
you can talk with some, you can parlay, parlay with some, you can loot some, you can, you know, get others to attack some with you. Like the possibilities mm-hmm. are endless for both GMs and players. That is a really good reminder, though, uh, speaking of enemies following you. Sometimes you get into an encounter and your best option is to run away. And you should do that. And that's when it's good to have caltrops guarding your retreat. Right. And also uh, arcane locks uh, and walls of force. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think I know the answer to this, but what is your favorite dungeon crawl? So my favorite adventure module is a dungeon crawl, and that's Sunless Citadel, uh, which is a level one adventure from 3.5 probably actually just third edition um, which is reprinted in fifth edition and i love it because it has a lot of the elements that we talked about with you know multiple factions it's got memorable npcs uh in in the form of meepo um it's got a it sets off a cool story um like the the whole arc is great it has a good kind of villain in it Um, so i like that module a lot but i think actually my favorite dungeon crawls are some of the more recently like a lot of the Shadow of the Demon Lord um, adventures are very good dungeon crawls, and they're short. You know, they're like six to ten room dungeons. But Shadow of the Demon Lord is such a resource management intensive game um, that it still has that very old school feel to it, without being quite as hopeless as like a dungeon crawl classics, where you're expecting to lose three characters before the night is done. Right, but because it's only you know a handful of rooms, you can like go in hot. And hard, uh, and then you know it's over pretty quickly. Yeah, and you know die in the last room, but you made it to the last room at least. You you got to see it. It's great, right? <laughs> Dungeon tourism via Shadow of the Demon Lord. <laughs> All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Um, I think that's the sound of my uh, Dungeon tourist passport getting stamped with a one-way ticket to the. Well, I want to say Mount Celestia, but let's be honest, the Nine House. All right, well, that can mean only one thing. It's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge and roll up a new passport picture. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And of course, you can follow the link in the show notes to our brand new Discord server, which is growing by the day. Uh, and I, I am loving the conversations going on there. Yeah, all of them are much more interesting than we are. So come mm-hmm. on. Indeed. And this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Elderwood Academy. They are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. You know, it's been a while since I've talked about this, but I have been using it for about five months now, and I still really love the scroll rolling tray. I uh, It is a dice tray. Uh, it's got like a leather bottom and wooden sides, but what makes it neat is that it it's magnetized, so two sides break apart, it rolls up, it comes in a handy little um, like velvet type bag, uh, and it packs down real easy in a book bag or a briefcase or something like that to where I can bring it wherever I need it, unpack it unroll it throw my dice in it and i'm good to go the thing i like about it the most is that you know how the trend lately is to have really great beautiful dice that are maybe made of metal or stone uh-huh. um but they can do a number on your table oh yeah on and other people's tables right so uh-huh. if you bring the, a little squirrel rolling tray you can take your big chunky heavy spiky dice sometimes uh, and roll them wherever you want 
Uh, and not only that, you won't damage your dice either, because sometimes the table strikes back. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so all of Elderwood Academy's products are crafted to look like, say it with me, I know you know it, spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear we love. That's right. So you can find that scroll rolling tray as well as a bunch of other amazing products at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. So this week in the Character Creation Forge it is still anime, and we are talking about the Stardust Crusader. All right, so which anime did this come from? It is from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I believe Stardust Crusaders uh, is the name of the third section iteration of uh, of the show. Is this the, the anime with, like, Mojo Jojo? Uh, that is not anime, and that is the Powerpuff Girls. Is that not anime? It is not anime. Okay. But it is a great show. <laughs> well, I just tricked you into admitting you like Powerpuff Girls, so I can move on. <laughs> Perfectly happy to say that. <laughs> so Starters Crusaders introduces the concept of a stand, which is like basically like a, a magic power. It's a psychic project- projection of a person's fighting spirit. They're unique to each person, and they often appear as a humanoid creature that shows up adjacent to the person who's using them. Uh, There are a bunch of different ones, but we are going to be building Star Platinum, who is the stand of Jotaro Kujo, the Jojo of Stardust Crusaders and protagonist of, well, most of the show, I guess. Much of the show. He is the most common Jojo in the show. Are you sure that this uh, isn't a translation error and they're actually stands for the other characters and they just run around talking about how great they are? Yeah. yeah, I'm an old man. Stan means fan. Is that what is that what it is? It, yeah, it means you like stand up and like you know proclaim how great they are. I hate everybody under the age of I don't know forty five. The the internet's so bad. Yeah, words are stupid. <laughs> all right, so what are the power set or uh, what what does Star Platinum do? You know, Laurel and Hardy. All right, that's my Stan. Okay, okay, great. <laughs> stan Laurel. <laughs> yeah, so you would stand Laurel and Hardy. That, that, that isn't your stand. I would stand, stand Laurel. That's what okay. I would do. <laughs> D- double stands. Got it. <laughs> All right, so Star Platinum is like is basically, he looks like a buffer version of JoJo. He's very strong. He's got very high speed, high damage punches. He's very resistant to damage. He can react even before JoJo's aware of danger. One time JoJo tried to shoot himself in the head, and Star Platinum stopped the bullet. Okay. Yeah, eventually he can even stop time for a very short amount of time from his perspective. All right, I'm not even going to ask. That's that's cool. Don't worry about it. So we're, so here's what we're doing. The character is uh, the stand because, remember, they're usually very close range to the user, like within two meters, which, hey, guess what, is a five-foot square. So <laughs> we're building the stand itself you the character the person who's using the stand are basically just kind of next to them and you know you're not going to get hurt until they die because you know if the stand dies the user dies okay great (laughs) so what's the build (laughs) it is open hand monk 5 totem barbarian 11 battle master fighter 4 all right well you mentioned punching so i assumed we would have monk and open hand means that we get unarmed strike we'll get some fast movement uh we get deflect missiles flurry of blows stunning strike so we can uh inflict the stun condition right lots of quick hard punching uh barbarian is going to get us rage and this i think would be basically manifesting star platinum uh himself you know because jojo does that to do things like 
bend steel bars, which you'll be able to do in that rage because you're getting advantage on those strength checks. Uh, he'll get danger sense, so Star Platinum's looking out for him even when uh, he's not looking out for himself. Uh, and even more fast movement. Uh, you'll also get reckless attack for uh, advantage whenever you would like it. Uh, we're going to take bear totem uh, to be resistant to basically everything. And then at level 6, we're going to take eagle because star platinum has excellent, excellent eyesight. And with eagle, you'll be able to see clearly up to a mile away. You will also, with your danger sense, be able to act even when you are surprised, uh, which is I don't know. Sounds an awful lot like what you just described uh, Star Platinum doing. Oh, you're welcome, yes. And at level 11, you'll get Relentless Rage, which lets you make ever-increasing constitution saving throws in order to not die when you uh, normally would be reduced to zero hit points. Uh, From Fighter, we're going to take Battlemaster so we can get things like Lunging Attack, because Star Platinum does that weird attack where, like, two of his fingers, like, shoot far out. It's very strange. It's a little bit Mm -hmm. creepy. Yep. Sounds Uh, like it. Uh, and the time stop is not like a D&D time stop because Star Platinum and uh, his enemy Dio can both affect things while time is stopped. So like they can stop time and then like stab a guy, right? Which is not something you can do in D&D currently. So, so it's literally the exact opposite of D&D's time stop. Yeah, exactly. You can't do anything. You can affect yourself and that's it. Right. Uh, so we're going to be using action surge because you're moving so quickly. It's almost like everyone else to stop because also really what are you going to do when you stop time you're going to stab a guy Mm -hmm. a bunch more times yeah all right for leveling order we'll start up barbarian five to get extra attack we'll go monk five for stunning strike barbarian 11 for relentless rage and then fighter four to get that action surge because the time stop comes quite a bit later in star platinum's career so shane who is your stardust crusader so my Stardust Crusader uh, is protected by um, their dead parents who intervene and look out for them and sometimes manifest themselves before them to give them advice uh, or, you know, just to assist them when the going gets tough, you know, to inspire them to fight better, to do things better. I built Harry Potter. Oh my it's god, Harry I Potter. was just going to say, wait, so you built Harry Potter, but I was yeah. going to let you finish first. <laughs> it's just Harry Potter, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Wonderful. No, I, I like this a lot. Uh, you can have your tragic backstory, and then sort of, you know, this manifestation is uh, almost like a second thing to roleplay with, you know? It's like another toy. It's like a, It's almost like an unofficial animal companion or familiar. That's nice. Uh, so now we have to build a Harry Potter barbarian that uses uh, Ancestral Warrior. <laughs> And every time he rages, conjures spirits of his dead family. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's basically a Patronus, I guess. Like, sure, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, who is your Stardust Crusader? Well, in keeping with anime, my Stardust Crusader, uh, their stand is really just a giant mech suit of armor. Um, they are probably... Well, it's anime, all right? They're a 12-year-old kid, okay? That sounds right. A girl. A 12-year-old genius who built a giant person-sized suit of armor, uh, and she has decided that she is going to teach everyone a lesson here at school because they're not taking classes seriously enough, and someday Senpai will notice her. I will say one thing for anime is they always have the... um, like the frame of reference of children's like ambitions absolutely dead on accurate 
Oh my god, yeah, yeah. Like, like I could rule the world with this, but I will instead be the coolest kid in school. <laughs> <laughs> Why won't you notice me? That's I can right. destroy suns. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And in the past uh, couple months, we have had just a whole bunch of new patrons joining, um, coming on board. We really appreciate your support. Um, just We don't name everybody because I didn't want to have to ask permission for everybody to read their name on the air. Um, but you know, thank you for, for those commitments that you guys have made. That uh, We really appreciate that. Yeah, you're all super awesome. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Shane, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, we're doing a mega mailbag special for our 200th episode. I'll get the whiskey ready. Uh, actually, you know what? I uh, I already got a special episode 200 booze. Don't, Uh-oh. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about no it. No spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see. You'll see. So send your questions to totalpartythrill at gmail.com. Okay, and then what's going on in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the modern Major General, finally. All right, well, that's it for episode 199 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you by our friends at D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is... A D&D 5th edition digital resource. Uh, you log on there. You got your free account. You can build some characters. Uh, you can take a look at uh, some of the rules compendiums and see what's going on. If you want, you can pay uh, for a subscription and get access to all of the rules and all of the different races and character classes and uh, campaign trackers uh, for everything that's been published for 5th edition. Yeah, there's also a bunch of just free stuff up on D&D Beyond. So there's great articles from James J. Heck. There's also a bunch of videos from Todd Kenrick. Um, there is like a whole pile of homebrew stuff that's just sitting out there. Like if you're looking for literally anything, uh, you could just find homebrew. And what I thought was really clever as I went through and started um, kind of just copying um the azimar into a half fey uh because that's what we're using for our game and i just wanted to get all the names correct uh it wouldn't let me submit it to the homebrew like channel because it was too similar to an existing thing nice so it was like you know because i just copied all the abilities it was like nope nope that's just the same thing we already have that we don't need that thank you bye oh it wouldn't let you submit because you were too unoriginal Mm-hmm. I let me save great. it so I could use it but it would not try and spam other people with access to my lame half fay that's awesome because you weren't trying to do that in the first place uh, but you did want to like rename a bunch of stuff because you wanted to make it Eberron specific exactly yeah so the site has been rolling out new features even since we've had access. So uh, it, it, it is really a living, thriving platform. It is uh, my favorite way to play with digital characters now. Uh, I'm using it for a druid, and it is saving me a ton of paper. And you know what? I don't think uh, there's a higher compliment for a digital product than it is saving paper. Yeah, especially in an RPG. <laughs> Look, we've only got one world, okay? <laughs> So you can check out D&D Beyond right now at www.dndbeyond.com.